This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome in, everybody, to the Salt City Hoops uh, the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of SaltCityHoops.com. We're the ESPN Troop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. Ben Dowsett over here is associate editor of Salt City Hoops. Uh, and we've got a lot to talk about. I mean, we just had two conference final series that were both, uh, I don't know, they weren't spectacular. They were four games and five games each. They weren't, you know, the kind of close contests that naturally all NBA fans were kind of hoping for. But it does set up a really encouraging NBA Finals. So Maybe. I, no, I, I, I'm pretty excited about it. I mean, how can you not be excited for the, the matchup between the MVP of the league and the MVP of three of the last four seasons before that in, in LeBron James? Uh, That's I mean, pretty I exciting. Can, I can answer that. I'm not going to answer that question. I can answer no, that please question. do answer that. Uh, well, the answer to that question would be when one of the teams – is just way, 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 way better than the other team, despite said MVPs and whatnot, which I believe is the case. And I think I, I'm. Everyone knows I'm a, a bit of a LeBron homer. I'd love to see. <laughs> I'd love to see a great series. Uh, I just think Golden State is, uh, assuming Clay Thompson doesn't miss any time, which we'll talk about him in a little bit. I, I just don't. I, I think Golden State's way better, and we've seen a bit of a mirage with Cleveland. They've, they're they're essentially playing in a different league. Up. The, until this point in the playoffs, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's fair. We've all seen kind of the Eastern Conference struggle so far this year. That's that's certainly the case. Uh, I, I wonder, though, if... Uh, I, I'm curious. Um, and, and I, okay, I'm actually going to save that for later in the, in the yeah. show when we, we, we're going to do our full breakdown of the NBA Finals. By the way, ESPN 700 is your home for the, for the NBA Finals here in Utah. Uh, but I also want to talk about what the Utah Jazz are doing. There's there are some really interesting conversations taking place around this number twelve pick about who to draft or what kind of trades that the Jazz could make, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then there's um, some some interesting. I still want to talk about, like I said, the Western Conference Finals as well, because okay. um, I, I think we saw some interesting things both last night and in Game Four that I, I will inform the NBA Finals moving forward. Um, we also, later on on the show, at, in the 8 o'clock hour, we'll have Dean Demacus on the show. He's an NBA draft expert. We love having him on. He knows so much about both the scouting and statistical side of evaluating these NBA prospects. So he'll be joining us for about 20 minutes at about 8 o'clock. And as always, you guys out there, our audience, are part of the show as well. Please feel free to tweet in to at Andy B. Larson or at Ben underscore Dowsett. Or you can always call in to 877-353-0700. That's 877-353-0700. Particularly during this first bit, guys, when we're going to do some talk about some draft. We're going to talk about maybe some potential trades. We want to hear from you on these types of things. So uh, let us know if you have some opinions there. Cool. Well, let, let's go ahead and get started. So uh, talking about the draft a little bit. Look, I, I think it's it's we haven't had a show since the lottery. The Jazz did not move from the 12 spot. The 2.5% chance did not occur, unfortunately. I was shocked for one. <laughs> um, but there was, uh, there was one move in the lottery that, that kind of changed things up, and that was the Knicks sliding back to the number four spot. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, our hated LOL Lakers moved up to number two. It was still funny, though. 
just because of what the Knicks have been for the last couple of decades. So. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it's it's kind of a bummer. I, I would rather see the Lakers fail, but seeing the Knicks True. fail is is not the worst thing. Close in the world. sec, close second. Yeah, I, is it is it second in your mind? I'm not outside the Lakers. I'm not one of those people who's ever developed a real, even though I do root for the Jazz, that who's developed a real rivalry with any of their other except the Lakers. And so beyond that, I just think of it in a total NBA sense. And from a total NBA karma sense, I think the Knicks are, uh, Knicks are a close second okay. there for me. Okay, fair enough. Um, for me, it might be the Chicago Bulls. Okay, that's fair. You know, yep. I was I was personally harmed by them yep. as a child. I, and maybe personally is too strong. But I, I felt a connection to the Jazz. We are Utah Jazz, as, yep. the, as the motto goes. <laughs> I was offended. Let me let me break down some of the storylines of, of this draft then, kind of moving into the month of the NBA draft. One, who does Minnesota take number one is a really interesting question. It is. Um, there are a lot of rumors that Flip Saunders, both coach and GM of that Minnesota Timberwolves franchise, really likes Jaleel Okafor yep. and, and wants to take him number one. I think it's fair to say most scouts and NBA thinkers would take Carl Anthony Towns um, due to his better rim protection and maybe a little bit better outside shooting. A, than little, a little bit might be a bit of an understatement <laughs> there. Okafor can't shoot at all from yeah. outside about eight feet. But on the other hand, Okafor is is the premier post talent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it is hard to find those sort of players. Whether or not they're dying off because there just aren't any or because the game has changed is, is a separate question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, first of all, if you were number one, would you take Towns? Oh, absolutely. I I... I understand, for instance, Zach Lowe did a really interesting piece, yet, uh, not yesterday, but the day before, excuse me, on the post and how the post game will still be important going forward, but maybe in a different sense than how it used to be in the past, maybe more in a mismatch sense, teams doing a lot of switching on pick and rolls, things like that. Even with taking in that, account, that into account, excuse me, I... I just don't see that skill set being as important. I'm, I'm very, I've always been one who's very much into what the the future of the league is, and I, I really do believe that. The, and I think everyone that pays a lot of close attention believes that it's shooting, spacing, rim protection as far as defensively, um, and that those things all tie into each other. Of course, I, I just think Towns in the in today's NBA and the future NBA that he's going to be playing in is just a. a a much, much, much better prospect in every way. Uh, def- I mean, and d- defensively is a major one. You can't have a 35-minute-per-game center like Okafor is potentially projected to be. Who's He's re- he's not very good defensively. He's he's slow on his rotations. He doesn't have good foot speed. He can't jump very well. He, I, do, you, I don't, do you think that's a permanent condition? I, I'm, I only not. say that because I, I look at the Jazz's prospects from this year, Dante Axum and Ronnie Hood. And both were supposed to be legitimately, uh, okay, I'll say below average defenders. But really, I think people thought they'd be worse than that. I mean, Rodney Hood took plays off last year at Duke on defense. Um, And and then Dante Exum didn't play defense at all in in high school. Quite frankly, just did everything on offense and, and didn't ever need to play defense. Yeah, the thing so, that I see, I think I, I did watch a bit of Okafor. I can't say I've watched him as much as the experts have watched him and don't want to claim to be a, his expert or anything, but I watched enough and I did see times where at least it appeared as though he was trying and he was doing what he could within his physical power and there just actually wasn't all that much there. Laterally, he's just not very fast laterally. He doesn't have a whole lot of speed. I also wonder if we're not underrating D'Angelo Russell. We might be. Uh, just because he's such a good prospect statistically, he doesn't have any weaknesses. He almost kind of reminds me of, of who James Harden was coming out of college, yep. where you know he, he doesn't, I guess, 
he's not flashy, mm-hmm. but he's just so effective at every aspect of the game. And he's a better shooter. Be, he's a better shooter than Harden was at this age too. It's going to be very difficult in my mind to have him fail as a prospect. And and those kind of guys can kind of sneak up on you and ask, you know, why didn't we draft this guy in the first place? Brandon Roy in, uh, I believe that was 05, is, is to me the same kind of case where there's just this good player that everyone kind of realized doesn't have any weaknesses that is just sitting there in the draft, and but nobody wants to take them number one or number two because, uh, you know, I don't think Towns that's and Okafor a, are good prospects. I, I mean, don't think that's a foregone conclusion. I do think that you know you never know exactly what's going on in the minds of those executives, but I do think they're going to at least be considering D'Angelo Russell at three or at uh, excuse, excuse me at one or two. I, I agree that it's it's maybe not number one or number two, uh, and, and I think number three is kind of the most likely p- spot for him. But Phil, I would Philly's going to love it if he's still sitting. I there I would three. be thrilled if he. I, I mean, I would absolutely consider taking him at number one, and I'd be thrilled with him at number two. Yeah, it, oh, I mean, me personally, if I'm the Lakers sitting there at two and Towns goes one to Minnesota, me, my own personal board and my fit with most teams in particular doesn't have Okafor in the top three or four. Okay. My, my board would actually, my board would probably, depending on fit, would go probably Towns, Russell, and then from there. So then, let me ask you this: um, if if the board goes Towns, Okafor, Russell, or some combination of those three, I think the next interesting focal point of the draft is at number four. Mm-hmm when the Knicks have to decide whether or not they're going to take Emmanuel Moutier. And to me, that's an interesting question. One, because the triangle does not work with his style of point guard, or at least his style of point guard does not work in the triangle. It just doesn't take advantage of, of his ball, of his ball speed and his ability to penetrate off the dribble. That's not how the triangle is designed. So it, it kind of depends how stuck the New York Knicks are with the triangle. Um, we saw them kind of move away from it at the end of the season in order to get some wins, which ultimately hurt their draft spot <laughs> yeah. stock. So they're where they are today. They would be drafting um, otherwise. <laughs> if they choose not to go that direction, I really think it's possible Moutier slips. I would agree. I think he's he's almost like the Exum of last year in a sense, where a lot of his skills at the NBA level are just completely unknown because he hasn't spent this year playing against guys who are anywhere close to his skill level. Yeah, and then you look after that. Where does Orlando take Moutier? I mean, they they're set like uh, exactly. Yeah. They're set up point guard. Does Orlando or sorry, does Sacramento take Moutier? I mean, if you're Vlade Divac, do you risk yourself as as the first year in the as, in the GM spot on an uh, kind of an unknown quantity? Yeah, uh, I you know I I think that's a real question. I, I might take Justice Winslow. Dean Demacus, our guest later on in the program at the eight o'clock hour, loves Winslow. So do I. Uh, and, and so you know, I might take him over over Moutier and be pretty happy with that. Porzingis is still on the board. I've heard from a couple different NBA teams that they have him in their top three amongst the wow. uh, D'Angelo and, and Towns of the world. So huh. I mean, having that level of talent is obviously very nice. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I could really legitimately see him falling to maybe like nine, ten, eleven if. If things fall right, if he's at twelve, do you consider him? If you're the Jazz, that's the thing is as a value pick, be there, and, I, and it's it's something to consider. As a value pick, I think you have to take him, even though you have two point guards. I mean, you you basically kind of have to grin and take him, and then try to auction him off as quickly as possible over the next two hours of the draft, or auction off one of your other guys. I guess that's true. I mean, yeah, you'd have to see. Okay, now all of a sudden, you have to trade Trey that night. Almost, or very soon after that, and you know the price for him goes down the second you make that selection, which yep. it's already pretty low in the first place. Yeah, so really you have, really what you'd want to do is you'd have four minutes to trade Trey Burke before you make that pick. Yeah. And uh, that's not, <laughs> not a terribly long amount of time to make, make a trade. 
Well, we're at the Jazz now, so I mean, yeah, I'm interested let's to talk see about number twelve. Going a little, a little more realistically, assuming that a major guy who's expected to be gone before then isn't still there, which I think, you know, you never know what's going to happen, but let's just make that assumption for now that, like, for example, Porzingis won't be there and Mario Hizanja won't be there and Moody I won't be there. Um, just assuming that generally the rest of the class, right? Even yeah. Pro- I'm going to even say probably assuming Stanley Johnson won't be there. Yeah, because he is, in my mind, a top 10 prospect. You know, if he falls, I, I'd take him I think I'd probably well. snap him up, yeah. To me, uh, honestly, to me, there's a top nine in this draft. Okay. Um, that would be Towns, Okafor, Russell, Moutier, Hazonia, Carl- Carly Stein, Winslow, Perzingas, and Johnson. Okay. Uh, and there are different tiers within that top nine. Yep. But then once you get to 10 and you get to the Miles Turner, Ubre, Kaminsky, Booker, Decker kind of class. I do think you're right. I, I think, I think there's, a, a there's a drop-off after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if any of those nine were to fall to the Jazz at 12, that'd be great. And there's a reason that these teams are in the lottery is, is many of them are poorly managed. And so they may choose Some of them the might. wrong sort of player there. Yeah. Uh, heck, we've seen it with the Cavaliers, even though they've they lucked out into the finals. Yeah, uh, it ha- it helps when the best player since Michael decides to come back and play for your team in the middle of his prime. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but as as a as a front office strategy, the strategy of reaching in the NBA draft, getting lucky out of three of the four drafts in a row, and then signing LeBron is is not a repeatable strategy. Not sustainable. Yeah. So out right. of those players, now I wanted to do a quick thing really quickly on Frank Kaminsky. Um, okay, yeah, let's talk been a, about it. There's him. been a lot of talk about Frank Kaminsky around jazz land, and in particular, the uh, radio voice of the jazz, David Locke, has been very vocal about his idea that, that Frank Kaminsky is a very risky pick, and the reasoning he's using, which I want to first of all state that in general I agree with, is that guys who played four years, either three or four years in college and were only dominant towards the end of that stretch, and therefore they were not dominant when they were 18 and 19 playing against other 18 and 19-year-olds. It's true, as David notes, they have a tendency, there's a historical precedent for those guys, in a lot of cases at least, to fail in yeah. the NBA. Yeah, I mean, we can name some. Jimmer Fredette is yeah. maybe the biggest local example, mm-hmm. but you look at guys like Adam Morrison, you look at, uh, I'm trying to remember others, I mean... It, it's been kind of ugly for those sort of players. Now, here's the reason why I kind of disagree with the assessment of Kaminsky as a rookie pick or as a risky pick in this context. I think the context in which David is making a lot of that those comparisons, and again, he's completely right on many of those guys. Although there are other there are guys that kind of are the that maybe the exceptions that prove the rule. Guys like Damian Lillard or Tim Duncan or whoever. Um, the reason I disagree is because of the context in which the Jazz are making that pick. A lot of these examples that we're looking at of these types of guys, guys who went, you know, I think he used Wesley Johnson was in, uh, in his tip-off this yeah. morning, David. He used Wesley Johnson as example. 24 when he was drafted. And here's the thing about Wesley Johnson. He was a top-five pick, meaning you're selecting him, hopefully expecting top-five upside. With the Jazz, we're talking about a 12th pick, and I think maybe at times there's a little bit of a misunderstanding as to just how large the gap is between those two picks in terms of their historical expectation as an NBA player. The Jazz are not drafting Frank Kaminsky expecting him to add a number of skills that he doesn't already have or to even really improve the skills that he does currently have very much. The Jazz are essentially drafting Kaminsky at 12th, expecting him to be what he's already proven himself to be, which is a 7-foot-tall person who is very, very smart on both ends of the floor, can move the ball, and can most of all, can knock down threes, which... Again, as we were saying before, I'm really big on the sort of the future wave of the NBA, and I think Kaminsky, whether or not he ever even is really able to do anything more than what I just said right there, 
that makes him, assuming his shot doesn't just break at the NBA level and he's just incapable of hitting threes. Which, which does happen to some guys. It happens, but I don't believe it based on what I've been reading. You know, Chad Ford yeah. reported last week that scouts are just wowed at Kaminsky. They, they say he might be the best pure shooter in the draft, a draft that contains D'Angelo Russell, which is crazy. Like, even if that's not true, if it's anywhere close to true, assuming his shot doesn't break in the NBA, what he adds just with that, if he, that, I think that's right around the positive end of expectation for the 12th pick, don't you? Because you can look back at the yeah. 12th pick historically. Plenty of guys just bust, and that's just kind of what happens with the 12th pick. So then, I mean, what's the difference between saying that and, and someone like Jimmer Fredette, who had, uh, again, had that shooting ability in college that you could say, okay, this is definitely a translatable skill to the NBA, but then also had a bunch of the same worries that maybe keeps him off the floor that Kaminsky might, that might keep Kaminsky off the floor as well, whether that be lateral movement on defense, both of them not stellar at that, uh, whether it be kind of a feel for the game issue, uh, you know, being involved in an offense that doesn't revolve around you. Yeah. Um, the difference, I would say, particularly with Kaminsky, is the size. Half the reason Jimmer hasn't succeeded in the NBA is because of how tiny he is and because for his size, he's not particularly fast. Kaminsky doesn't have that. I know that he... He may have some flaws defensively, but again, this isn't a player you're drafting expecting him to play 35 minutes a game down the line, ever, at any point in his career. You're drafting this guy to be your third big behind Rudy Gobert and and Derek Favors to add an extra dimension for you offensively in terms of if you're down 10 points to a team in the fourth quarter, okay, let's toss Derek at center, let's toss Frank in at the four, we'll go four out at all times with Derek running pick and rolls, and all of a sudden you become a lot harder to guard. Those situations you aren't necessarily so worried about, well— you know, is he going to get killed in the post on the other end? And if he's a third big, you're, he's playing against a lot of second units. And really, how many guys are there in the league that are playing on second units for teams that are really going to hurt a seven, a bona fide seven-footer in the post, even if he's not a great post defender, which Kaminsky isn't. He's not a top-level post defender. I just, again, based on the way the league is currently moving, and more specifically based on the needs that the Jazz have, which are definitely shooting, and a, a seven-footer who can shoot is more than just a standard shooter. He's a That's a bigger deal, a seven right. because he pulls uh, the other team's seven-footer away from the basket when he's out there. But, we, I mean, we've seen guys like Spencer Haas or B.J. Mullins or th- these kind of guys who are seven feet and can shoot from three fail because they can't play defense. And really do worry about the happening to Kaminsky. Uh, because uh, you're right that I, I don't think he'll be able to improve very much because of his age. That's that's the thing that worries me. And I'm playing devil's advocate with you a little bit because I, I, I don't mind the idea of Kaminsky on the Jazz, but that's what worries me is that there are similar players in the league that, that struggle. I mean, to me, I, I think his best case is somewhere along the lines of Kelly Olynyk, and his worst case is somewhere along the lines of like Spencer Hawes or, like I said, B.J. Mullins. Like, I, I do think we're potentially underrating him a little defense. Like, we don't necessarily know for sure how he's going to be defensively yet in the league because right. we've only seen him against, like we say, athletes that don't really stack up to him. And I, I, I just, I, I have his ceiling higher than that, essentially. And I think he's, I think in the context that you're drafting him for, which isn't to be a huge minutes guy, it's to be a situational third big who can work really well in certain situations, but then in other situations you can be like, sorry, Frank, you're sitting, then I, I think that absolutely works. You can't always, you know, at the 12th pick, you can't always have guys that are going to be strong on both ends. Right, no, I mean, that's, it's it's a crapshoot. I mean, that's, especially if you look at the history of the number 12 pick for the last yeah. decade, decade and a half, I mean, the best player there is Thaddeus Young. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just, you know, you're not likely to get a good player. No. Um, so if you can fill a need that you really need with the Jazz, which I think shooting is clearly falls into that category, that's why I'm all for a guy like Kaminsky at 12. Let me ask, is is he the one that you would 
prefer to take is he's your your number one guy. Yeah. If, uh, assuming, as we said, that those top, none of those top nine right. that we mentioned fall to the Jazz, uh, Kaminsky would be the guy I would take at that point. I might consider Devin Booker. I would look at him as I don't. I don't mind um, Booker. I would look because at him. you know he he fills the same sort of things, but is four years younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the youngest prospect in the draft. They're only eighteen years old as of right now. Uh, turns only turns nineteen October thirtieth, so about opening day. Wow, that's, he's that's, super young. Yeah, actually younger than Dante Exum was yeah. last year when he when coming in. Uh, so I, I think you get a lot from that, and and you get a lot of upside potential, so that you you have someone who can shoot right away, but can also play defense maybe down the road. Definitely. Um, uh, Real quick, we had a tweet just before we move away from Kaminsky. Yeah. A tweet from Travis Reed. He says like he can't see any way Frank Kaminsky doesn't become a solid role player in the NBA. He also says I don't think Kaminsky quote unquote can't play defense. Sure, he's not a great defender yet, but the effort and desire is there. Which, to, to a point, I'd agree with. And to actually further your point about the age, I there are times where I don't actually think that's the worst thing that Kaminsky is more of a ready now player. Because as I've mentioned a million times on this program, I think next year is a really important year for the Jazz to be contending and potentially adding one more, excuse me, one more rotation piece who can do things for you. I think that could be big. I no, I, I agree, and I'm I'm almost tempted to go with we have a would you rather. Segment oh, man. for later on the show. Oh man! Um, and I'm almost tempted to to bust it out right now. Heck, let's just do it. All right, let's do let's it. do it. We'll save trades for later. Would you rather do Frank Kaminsky or trade the number twelve pick for Patrick Patterson, a guy who's proven that he can be that out outside uh, kind of stretch for a guy? What are we sending for the pick or for number Patterson? twelve and Patrick Patterson? We have the catch. That's case. it. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Oh. That's a good question. <laughs> I'd probably take Patterson because he's a, because he's a little bit more proven, as you said, and and specifically we know that he can defend not well, but not terribly either. He's I don't think he's a great defender, but I don't think he's an he's a liability. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think he's maybe average to above average. I mean, and he, he does he have better kind of foot speed than Kaminsky, meaning that I Kaminsky said in his pre-draft stuff that he wants to be a stretch four. I don't know if I see him as a four very much because he's not fast enough. I agree. I see him as a center, and I think that's a big problem for Kaminsky. Uh, because he doesn't have the length, you know, with the six eleven wingspan, I don't think he has the length to do anything at the rim, which to me hurts you so much compared to a Rudy Gobert, who you know all of a sudden is is the guy you're platooning him with. Uh, I I think that's a bigger difference than, I mean, maybe it's just the again the difference between uh, Frank Kaminsky and Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert is is gigantic and has these yeah. ridiculous arms, and obviously. And, but Rudy can't. Just, yeah, and Nobody so, you know. does. But I, I, I just think that now the Jazz have this identity of protecting the paint, and if you have Frank Kaminsky as your backup five, you're giving up on that for a certain number of stretch for yeah a certain stretch of the game. Well, but it's not like you can't play in periods with against the right teams. You could play him with Gobert, and with against pretty much anybody, you could play him with Favors. Um, I, I just I like the pick. We we've gone too long on this one already, <laughs> but I, I I do think Kaminsky would be my first choice there because I think he opens up. I think. The other thing we're doing is we're understating just how much he would open things up for the Jazz offense, even just by being on the floor. Oh, over trading for Patrick Patterson? Um, well, maybe not. In that in that case, I think I would go with Patterson because he does slot in better as a stretch four than Kaminsky does. Okay. No, and I, I think that makes sense. Uh, okay, well, one more question. Even though the Jazz already have Trevor Booker, who is in uh, not a stretch four, but you know, uh, is a power forward, definitely. Mm-hmm. So you, you'd still need to find a backup center somehow. Right. Yeah. Are you okay with that? 
Okay. Yeah, I, I'm just I think I'd be in, fine. In you, get, you, well. can, you can throw favors in. I don't love favors as a center, but especially against starters, but for some minutes he can play at center. Okay. And, and at times the two big positions are, are interchangeable to a point. I think against big li- or bench lineups especially, he can play the yeah. center oh, pretty yeah. well. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, let's go ahead and take a break. On the other side, we're going to be recapping the Western Conference Finals and then uh, previewing the finals as well. We've also got some trade conversation left over from that segment that we want to talk about, some trade ideas for the number 12 pick. So if you like that conversation that's coming up later in the show, you're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700, home of the NBA Finals. Talking hoops and the association, this is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of Salt City Hoops. Ben Dowsett with me as always. So we're going to break down the conference finals. Of course, we're watching the spelling bee like all of you. Only of two course. competitors remain. She just spelled the word right. Tamakau? I have no idea how you pronounce it. We, we can't listen and do the show at the same time. No. But regardless, spelling bee. It's, it's great theater on ESPN. Uh, let's talk about the Eastern Conference Finals first, and then uh, well, let's talk about them quickly, and then we'll spend most of the time on the Western Conference Finals. 4-0 sweep for the Cavaliers in the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, your thoughts? I mean, I, I noticed this, too, that you've got in the notes. Atlanta just couldn't make a shot. They really couldn't. This is something, if you guys are really interested in it, go back and check uh, Seth Partnow's uh, timeline on Twitter. He's the the open shot guru because he... he, he uh, parses the sport view data in terms of defender distance and things. If you look at Atlanta's numbers on quote-unquote open jumpers throughout, not just in this series, but especially in this series, but so in the whole playoffs. That's Sorry, just time out. That's using the sport view data to figure right. out whether or not there are defenders nearby. Exactly. Um, Atlanta's numbers just absolutely tanked from the regular season. Why? It, Why it's really hard is to it, say. Is it just luck? Is it just... I think that's a big part of it. It could be something to do with, with they wore down a little after the full season, but it's not like they were overtaxing any of those players, really. Um Corver being out certainly didn't help in the last couple games, though he was right. one of the chief. It wasn't working for him before he went down. Um, and, it, a lot of it really just is perplexing. There, Cephalosha didn't. I mean, Cephalosha didn't play. Shot, uh, wasn't an open shot maker. No, he wasn't. It's. I don't know. Honestly, it's. It's really. It is a bit confusing. It makes you wonder whether there might be at times at least something more to that data in terms of like how much does it make a difference if a guy is you know running full speed at you with his arms up but still doesn't end up within four feet of you by the time you shoot or something like that. Uh, but in the cumulative, those stats tend to be pretty accurate. And in the cumulative over this series, they just couldn't, they were nowhere close to their season long numbers. I also wonder if it's, you know, Horford had an injury. Millsap uh, was announced that he'll have some sh- sort of shoulder surgery. Was he playing hurt? I think he was playing hurt. I think he was playing hurt. Uh, you know, I, I think basically it comes down to a lot of that. We saw Damari Carroll go down at the yep. beginning of that series. <laughs> Literally all of the Hawks starting five got hurt. Right. At some point during these playoffs. Yeah. And that's not to say that the Cavs didn't play good defense. They did. And and frankly, they have to be given credit for the way they've transformed their team almost overnight from when Love got hurt in that first round to being I'm not going to go so far as to say they're a great defensive team, but they're definitely way, way better than where they were at before. I think yeah. we can say that even based on the sample size we've seen. Whether they'll continue it against uh, against Golden State in the finals, we'll talk about that in the next segment. I'm not so sure, but you do have to give some major credit for that, and especially to guys like Tristan Thompson, Timothy Mozgov. Have been, those guys have been awesome. Yeah, how good do you think Atlanta is next year? I mean, uh, presuming they're able to keep Millsap and Carroll, which I think is probably likely, mm-hmm. uh, 
Do, do you think they're as good as they were last season? Not as good. I mean, you look at their Pythagorean percentage, for example, which for those who don't know is a way of estimating based on their point differential of estimating how many wins they should have had. Their Pythagorean expectation was only about 55 wins this year. They won 60. So they exceeded that, well exceeded that, which you don't expect to happen but again. But still at 55, they would have been the top team in the East. They still would have been. I, I do think that maybe there were bits of luck in there. It's hard to parse which elements were luck and weren't. They did win a lot of close games. Like that 18-game streak that they had or whatever, several of those were games that could have gone either way. Although, I do, you know, that's in the Pythagorean it expectation is. as it well. Is. I would say that they, their starting five also stayed healthy during right. the regular season, mm-hmm. didn't in the playoffs, and, and that was a big problem for them. Let's move on to the Western Conference because, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of a closer series, but I think also a more interesting one strategically. Uh, by game number, it wasn't closer, but by style, it definitely was closer. It was it was a lot more interesting. Like but, Houston could have won either of those first two games. They just by didn't. game number it wasn't closer. I mean, like it only went five games, so you don't think it was that much closer than a oh, four game series. Okay. But in stylistically, it was definitely closer. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, so game four was really interesting to me. Um, you know, forty five points for James Harden that's huge. Uh, and then for game five to be as close as it was, despite the thirteen turnovers yep. by James Harden. Uh, was was also interesting. The the Rockets kind of figured out their offensive groove at the at the end of the series. They did, and I th- I think you know you look at the talent on both of these two teams next. You stack it up next to each other. Um, th- there's no question the Warriors are just are way way higher, right? And I think that in a in a way, and I heard some other people talking about this as well. Houston it really made it a challenge for Golden State for for long periods, despite what I think is a large talent gap. I really actually do think that we may, in some aspects, be starting to see the visual effects of a Mori Ball type. Mori Ball, for the, again, being you pretty much don't shoot mid-range shots. You shoot shots at the rim and threes, and that's what you try and shoot only. And you overdo those things to the because they are higher efficiency shots in the aggregate. And I, I think even over the span of that five-game series, which again, they didn't win and they only won one game, I think we saw some of the bet of how at least that can bridge a talent gap to a point, right? Like, it wasn't yeah. enough to win them the series. And, and again, the injuries to Houston, I think, made a big difference, oh, yeah. especially with Patrick Beverly. I mean, that way they only had, well, probably zero players to really mark Clay Thompson. Ariza is really the only one. Yeah, I mean, and then who guards Harrison Barnes exactly. is the other problem. And, and so, anyway, uh, I think that was that was a big issue. Although, then injuries turned out to be a, an issue during the series for the Warriors, just in, in the terms of those head injuries to mm-hmm. Steph Curry and Clay Thompson in, in games four and five. I mean, I, I, I'm really kind of worried about this because Golden State staff messed up on the Harrison Barnes uh, concussion two seasons ago. Like, it's known they screwed that up. Like, they, put, they sent him back into a game where he was la- diagnosed later that night with a concussion. And then when Clay Thompson gets kneed in the head last night, they don't. They say he didn't have a concussion, didn't undergo the concussion tests, but then after the game felt dizzy or woozy and was wasn't able to drive home, was, was bleeding out of his ear. I mean, to me, that's a time when you probably should do the concussion test. Yeah, I thought that was unbelievable at the moment, and then I did some more tweeting about it today in my usual what, <laughs> what in the world is going on type of tone because I don't understand why there's been so little conversation over this. I understand that they, you know, they brought him back out of the locker room. He never actually got on the court, and then they were like, oh, wait, something's wrong here. We can't let this guy play, and they took – and I like which it's is, good. Which is better than – It's better not. than letting him play, Like, and I'm glad that he didn't actually get on the court to play, but when you're a – especially when you're an organization that, one, has a history of this with the Harrison Barnes thing that you mentioned. Two, had Steph Curry have the same thing happen to him last game, and you did the con- and they were they did it right in that case. They did the concussion test. There was no concussion. 
put him back out there and he's been fine, but that should just kind of raise your awareness and have you, you know, going through the paces of it. You should know what you have to do. Right. And Clay, I think there's almost no question as far as the head goes by itself. Clay's was more serious. Steph's looked worse and the arm, there was the arm thing as well because he kind of banged his arm under himself. But as far as how hard he hit his head, uh, Thompson hit his head harder. Well, almost no question. He got need by a moving person like in the air. Um, to not perform a concussion test to me is if, let me put it this way. If this happened to any NFL team's second best player, we saw the guy get whack coming over the middle or need, or need, let's say the exact same thing with his helmet on, even sure. get need in the face that hard and then come back out to, or even look like he's going to play in the next little while after that, there would be fury. There would be people would be getting there would be calls for the training staff to be getting fired. There would be questions about what the head coach was doing in the situation. The whole thing down. I don't the know. Line. I, I think it'd be. I mean, uh, that sort of situation happened in the NFL this year, and you know there was there was this sort of outcry, but I I, I think there was somewhat of an outcry from from last night's staff as well. I mean, to me, I, I think Golden State's staff needs to be seriously investigated by the NBA yep. and then find if it turns out that they did not undergo the correct protocols. I mean, yep. I, to me, I think they. It needs to be found out if they screwed up by an independent body. Mm-hmm. And then if they were, then they need to be punished for it. I mean, yeah. because the players' health, and especially that of Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, two of the brightest stars in our league, needs to be defended by these teams long-term over the short-term play, Absolutely. especially in, in Game 4 and Game 5 of a 3-0 series. Yeah, and and... Real quick, if I may speak to some people that I saw on Twitter, please stop with the whole <laughs> LOL Twitter doctors <laughs> thing on Twitter. <laughs> S- stop with that. Yes, I'm not a doctor, but don't act, don't come at me with that as if teams haven't ever misdiagnosed an injury previously on purpose so that a player could come back into an important game. These are big enough questions that I, I think it, it's important to ask ask the question, even if it turns out that you know the doctors were right on this. Absolutely, and 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 also, it's not like you need to be a clinical professional doctor to know that bleeding out of the ear after getting kneed <laughs> in the side of the head might be a sign that a player has a concussion. I don't think you need to have a doctorate to know that. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I want to read some tweets from from our audience really quick. I, I tweeted out by the way during the break on the number twelve for Patrick Patterson question. Wanted to kind of get some responses out there. Um, first of all, Michael Busio at Ambusio, wasn't he a number 12 pick, previ- pick previously? Was I'd he? do that deal. I believe he was at lower. I think he was 14. I, uh, check on that for me if you would. I am. Um, Sean P33 answers, not into I saw who was on the board at 12. I think that's a fair question. Mm-hmm. I then followed up and said, if that top nine that we were talking about were gone, would you make that trade? And he said, yes. So, I mean, I think that's a fair approach. If you've got one of those top nine prospects that you and I agree are the, are the top of this class, then great, go ahead and make that trade. And if you have an opportunity to take one of them, then make yep. that happen. Patterson was, you're right, 14th. Yes, NBA knowledge. By uh, the Houston Rockets. Sporadic regularity. That's kind of a cool uh, name on Twitter. At sporadic regular. Don't get me wrong. I like him, but he can be had for much less. Talking about Patrick Patterson. I think one of OKC 2018 or Golden State 2017 picks should be able to do it. I don't think so. I don't think they would trade him for a late first uh, along the 25 or 30th range like, no, like those not. picks project to be. No. Uh, and White Jones 33 just says no. <laughs> hey, fair enough. There you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's an interesting question. So we got what two yeses and two nos there, kind of. 
We yeah. got some uh, a maybe in there as well. And we took me waffling for like a minute in the last <laughs> on the last segment. So yeah, no, it's a close question. I, I think it's one of those questions that deserves more scrutiny because Toronto does want to make some changes to their roster, especially if, after how poorly they did in in the playoffs this year. They're the absolute kind of team that would be looking to target a a trade like that in mm-hmm. order to change up their their roster, and that's the sort of decision that Jazz decision makers have to make. Uh, and you know that that is to me a real possibility that that Patrick Patterson deal. I I think I wouldn't be I don't think I'd be too upset with it. I think I'd be all right with it. I, as you say, we'd have to see favors at center for some minutes, but I don't against especially against backup units. I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah, no, I I agree. All right, well let's move on. Uh, actually, let's go ahead and take a break. On the other side, I want to preview the the NBA Finals. Like I said, with the two last reigning MVPs, Steph Curry and LeBron James. So that's Wait, no, coming no, no. Up. What? No, Durant won last year. Oh, you're right. Sorry. Yeah. Two of the last three MVPs. Nah, Thank you, you for saving me on that. <laughs> uh, regardless, LeBron is a good basketball player. He's all right. Two good basketball players. Yeah, all right. That, <laughs> let's put it that way. All right. Uh, that's coming up next on the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700, home of the NBA Finals. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Welcome into the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700. I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of Salt City Hoops. Ben Dowsett, as always, joins me. We've been we've been focused on the spelling bee during the break. The the Scripps National Spelling Bee is you on have. ESPN. Uh, there there are two remaining spellers. Okay, Gokul and Vanya from Kansas and Missouri. So it, it's very much a civil war issue at this point. I'm Team Vanya. Um, <laughs> yeah, can we do play-by-play? Is I'm that team allowed? Va- I'm Team Vanya because I knew a guy named Vanya once, and he was really cool. Okay, fair enough. Well, Vanya's killing it so far. Gokul has no emotion. Okay. Apparently, during the commercial break, they said nothing to each other. There's, there's, is, they are not friends, in other words. They are, they are only warriors this out is there. These, if on these the guys were in the NBA of, Finals, the field of spelling. they're not shaking hands before the tip-off, man. No, they, they is... are rude. They're also 13 and 14. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> they're also spelling... Really, really difficult words that I yeah. can't spell. But, you know, of course they are because they're, they're the National Spelling Bee champions. And there are, I think, ten words left, by the way, until it's just declared a tie because huh. they're, too, they're too good at Because spelling. there aren't it's, any words in the language they can't they spell. They are now out of words. Yeah. And now she's spelling hippocrepiform, which, you know. Well, that one's easy. Come on. She's got it. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's preview the NBA Finals, why don't we? Uh I'm curious as to your thoughts. I know you've got an article coming up on on kind of how the matchups of this series play out. I do. Where? Tell me about that. Where Where do you see advantages for either side? Um. So first of all, this article will be posted tomorrow on BasketballInsiders.com for those interested in reading it. Thank you. Um, I think matchups on both sides are really interesting, particularly at the point guard position. And I think for the Cavs defensively, we were talking before about can they sustain the level of defense they've been playing. First of all, no, not against the Golden State (laughs) Warriors. But can they play well enough defensively to have a chance to win the series? I think the big question there hinges, of course, on how they're able to contain Steph Curry and specifically how the matchup with Curry kind of trickles down to all the other areas of their defense. So... Even if Kyrie Irving was 100%, which I don't think he'll be by next, we don't know for sure, but even if he was, I don't think he's a guy you can put for long minutes on Steph Curry by himself, even if you're planning on doing a lot of switching, which we'll talk about in a second. He's he's just... That he's going to get roasted too often. He's going to, It's not going to be a good matchup for you. I think, therefore, you have to look at putting him on Shumpert on him out of that starting lineup. 
But the issue with that is that part of what makes Golden State so strong is that they don't really have any weak points, particularly within that starting lineup of theirs. And at that point, you have to hide Kyrie somewhere. Meaning you have to hide him either on Harrison Barnes or on, uh, tri- on excuse me, Clay Thompson. Do you really want Kyrie running around through a bunch of screens every possession to try and catch up with Clay Thompson, who, by the way, can also post him up and can also shoot over him pretty much whenever he wants? But then by the same token, if the answer is no, do you really want LeBron doing that same thing? Like, LeBron can guard Klay Thompson anytime he needs to, but do you really want LeBron to be running through a bunch of back screens down low every single possession? Which, by the way, you know Steve Kerr would lean on that extra hard if LeBron was the guy guarding Thompson just to make sure LeBron got a little more workout every defensive possession. It becomes really tough there for who you put on who. I think we might see the Cavs go small a lot more often because when you go small and put either LeBron or a Shumpert on the four, being Draymond Green, who those guys can guard just fine in the post. That way you give maybe an extra hiding spot for Kyrie, that type of a thing. And then on the other side, I think it's kind of similar for Golden State. I don't know that Steph has improved defensively this year, but I don't know that he can guard Kyrie Irving. And specifically, the the switches are something I'm really interested in this series as well. Golden State's been doing it all year. It's been their calling card defensively. They have a bunch of, we've talked about it, they have a bunch of similarly sized guys. They switch all the pick and roll action, and that way you're just not getting any leverage or advantage off of your pick and rolls, and that neutralizes a lot of teams who, that's the first thing they go to, right, is pick and rolls. There's a chance they may actually not want to do as much of that in this series because of just how awesome... Kyrie and LeBron are in isolation like they've thrived in isolation off of switches at a lot of points which isn't necessarily the best way to get things done but it's not like your typical team where you're like yeah we're totally fine with them taking a small mismatch here rather than running their action and getting guys open on the perimeter or whatever I don't know if that's necessarily the case if you've got LeBron switching off onto Andrew Bogut or if you've got them running one five screens and Kyrie switched off onto Bogut or even onto Draymond Green or something like that I think that it we might see A, Cleveland start to switch more than they usually do on defense, and B, Golden State to start to actually switch way less, which some of this is not interesting to some people, but to me, I love this stuff. This is what I think what is going to make the series is who makes the better adjustments here. No, and and that's what is so interesting about the series. And and it's interesting. I mean, this is why you would make a good coach, Ben, is because you are thinking about these sort of things on a high level. (laughs) Even though it took you three minutes to answer that question and – Three different words were spelled correctly by oh, man. Goku Sorry. and Tanya in the meantime. Sorry. Um, but, <laughs> no, it's it's Pipsisewa is our next Pip- word. Oh, man. <laughs> it's probably not a good idea to try to pronounce these words on the radio. No, but he just got not. another one correct. Wow. It's it's He's like walking up there, spelling the word, getting out of there. Not even it's asking like, for definitions. I know that word. What's your problem? I've memorized the entire dictionary. Why That's haven't crazy. you? Basically, Goku's got he's he's got some he's got skills. He's All got right. game. He's got this. Uh, let's move back to the NBA Finals. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> do you do you think Cleveland has a realistic chance? Yeah, I do. I mean, I could see. I, I think Golden State's a more fragile team than I think we've seen this year, um, both in terms of injuries and in terms of uh, you know if someone were to shut down Steph, I, I think that. That could be a problem, and I, and I think LeBron may be a, a candidate to do so. You think they Maybe. might they might run LeBron on Steph for long periods? I, I I think it's possible. I mean, if it works, yeah. I 
I just don't think, I think it it's work. worth trying. I love LeBron as a locked in defender, but even I just I think Curry is one of those few players who you put him in two man action with somebody else. Even LeBron, even a transcendent guy like LeBron trying his hardest might not be able to do it all the time. Yeah, and I, I think LeBron has also slipped a degree or two since his prime. I think maybe yes. in his prime, I think he could kind of lock down Steph or at least relatively do so. I don't think he can now. I th- um, I think he could if it wasn't like also okay, LeBron, go have a forty plus usage on the <laughs> offensive end yeah. and do everything for us. If it was just be a spot-up shooter offensively and guard Steph all the time, he could maybe do it, but he probably can't do both. Which, yeah, I, I agree. So, ultimately, I, th- I think it's possible. You know, it's it's not a sure thing. The Vegas oddsmakers are giving the Cavs a 30% chance of winning the series. I, I think that's a little bit high. Uh, but I, I, I do think that the Warriors, I, I think we saw a lot of elements of the series last year, quite honestly, where you had a Miami Heat team that was very, very dependent on LeBron James, mm-hmm. shut down by a significantly better overall Spurs team. Yeah. Um, I, I just think that we see that happening again this year. I think it's the most likely outcome. One thing I will say real quick is that LeBron offensively may find a little bit easier sledding than previous series, just in terms of his, the man marking him. He's come off Damari Carroll and Jimmy Butler in the last two series, and yes, Carroll was hobbled for part of it, but I don't think Golden State has an individual guy who's quite as good as either of those as far as a LeBron defender. Now, that said, they do have three or four guys that can do the job at least at a decent level. Harrison Barnes can definitely do it. Clay can do it for periods. Draymond, I mean, they're not going to mind if Draymond gets switched on to him every once in a while, and uh, Iguodala can definitely, in fact, I think Iguodala might be their best option against LeBron, and I think we might see him more often than people are thinking for that reason. But like you said, even if LeBron can get his, I think we saw... I mean, LeBron got his last year in the finals, and we still saw what happened. Yep. Gokul just got his word right. Vanya is spelling hers now. There are only four words left oh, before man. they're just declared a tie. This is getting intense. Words get eliminated forever because they have been mastered by Vanya and Kogul. Uh, <laughs> so yep. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, <laughs> We're having too much fun And it's this. a spelling bee. She has to spell Sharon Shanite. <laughs> That's probably not a a swear word in in our language, at least. Hopefully. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to have Dean Demacus, expert on the NBA draft, both statistically and scouting-wise, next up on the Salt City Hoops show right here on ESPN 700. It is your home for the NBA Finals here in Utah. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. We had glorious moments in Spelling Bee history. Uh, just one of the best moments in Spelling Bee history come uh, during the break. Have they ever chopped it before? Has that ever happened before? Yeah, I, I think it has. Oh. Um, nevertheless, Vanya, uh, he, or sorry, Vanya, excuse me, was our, the second to last speller. Went up there, spelled her, the word I described before we went into break, tonight. Um, yeah, that word. <laughs> yeah. Spelled it exactly right. Gokul is up with the, with the game on the line. If he wins, he ties. If he loses, he's out. One word left. Goes up there, spells him in 15 seconds. No questions, no, spart- no part of speech. No, can you use it in a sentence? No, can you pronounce it again? Just, oh, that word, They told, bam, him, they told him the word one time. He spelled it and wins? Yeah. That's pretty impressive. It's baller. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. It is, it is him dropping the mic. I, I don't think he'd literally drop the mic because there is, there is a mic, but he didn't drop it, but he... He metaphorically dropped the mic, ruled the spelling bee. Both Vanya and Gokul are your spelling bee champions. It's still not as awesome. It's still not as awesome as passing out when you're being told a word and then waking back up from being passed out, spelling the word and winning the spelling bee like that guy did a few years ago. (laughs) I don't remember who. I I remember that. Do we we have Dean on the line, by the way? We do? 
Okay, cool. She's just been sitting here listening to, t- <laughs> listening to us talk about spelling bees. That's awful. You know, spelling bee talk is, is important. It's an important sports radio. It's on ESPN, okay? It can be on ESPN 700 as well. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, let's, let's go ahead and bring Dean in, though, to talk about the NBA draft. Like I said, Dean Demacus runs DeanOnDraft.com. It's an excellent draft resource for all of you who want the latest insight and kind of knowledge on, on what's going on in the NBA draft as we get closer to June 25th. Dean, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Cool. Well, hopefully you didn't mind our spelling bee talk too much. Oh, no, I didn't. I hadn't been watching, so I was kind of jealous that I couldn't chip in. <laughs> but, you know, I don't mind. I'm down with the spelling bee. It's a fun event every year. It is. All right, well, well, let's break down what you do know, the NBA draft. And, and I've got some questions for you, just kind of about some prospects. Um, I'm curious what your opinions are. We'll get Ben's thoughts as well. Um, my first question for you is, is on Kristaps Porzingis and and in particular I, I've heard a couple teams who have him in their top three like him that much to to kind of consider him a, a top three pick in this draft class other teams are more skeptical of, about his body and how he'll develop where do you kind of fit in on the scale uh, on Kristaps Porzingis because I, I do think he is kind of a divisive prospect yeah I would say I, I land on the more bearish side um, you know, I'm not exactly an expert in European players the way I am in CAA, but from what I can tell, I, I see why teams like him that much. You know, he's young, he's athletic, he's tall, he can shoot, and that all sort of lends itself to really high upside. But at the same time, I just think the NCAA prospects in this draft are so strong at the top that it's just insane to put him in the top three above guys like, you know, Towns, Russell, Okafor, Winslow, probably even Moutier. Uh, you know, he has questionable feel for the game. Like, there's his rebounding's terrible, and, you know, he has the toughness concerns. And, you know, there are there is sort of, like, the extremely prevalent comp to Bargnani. And, you know, maybe he won't be quite as apathetic or bad defensively as Bargnani. He can be, you know, much, much better. But, you know, it seems like there are reasons to expect for him to likely underachieve his, you know, theoretical potential. So I would say I definitely don't agree with the narrative that he should be on the top three. And I would take just, just because it just seems like an unnecessary gamble when all the NCAA prospects are so strong. So here's, here's my question about Porzingis real quick for you. And you may or may not know this and apologies if I'm putting you on the spot. My question with him has always been, at least one of the questions has been, is he going to stay in Europe or has, has there, I haven't looked at this too much. Has he already said that or made indications that he'll come and play in the NBA pretty much immediately? Or is this a guy who we could be looking at whatever team picks him doesn't have him for the next couple of years? Well, I'm not exactly sure about this. Um, I, but I don't think that should really make the biggest difference because rookies don't make a huge impact on mm-hmm. average anyway. And you can see, you know, the Bulls took out uh, Marodic, and uh, you know he's good immediately as a rookie because he was an older rookie. So that seemed to work out okay for them. I guess maybe at the top it matters a little bit, but I, I don't think it's something that puts a huge dent in his value. Maybe just give him a small down ticket those. Let me ask you what, what you think about Justice Winslow. I know that you, you love Winslow. You, you've talked about him a lot on, on the site. Why do you like him kind of more, more than the rest of this, uh, I guess, kind of the draft prognosticators do? And where do you have him on your board? 
I have him as a solid number two behind Towns. And wow. honestly, I would kind of want to debate him versus Towns, but I just don't think you can take him over, you know, the two-way big man prospect. But I just think, I just, I don't know why everybody, nobody's higher on him. I mean, he completely dominated the NCAA tournament. I guess he didn't have, you know, the biggest stat line in the championship game, but what's there to not like about him? You know, he has good statistics and then, but, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, they're sort of the baseline of what he can do in college now. And then you have to sort of break it down and look at it from all the different angles that the stats may cover. But from every angle, you look at Winslow, he just looks awesome. Like, his statistics are good against good against tough teams. They were amazing in the second half. Um, you know, he was battling some injuries earlier in the season. Uh, his defense is amazing, and that's something that's not always fully captured in stats. Uh you know, he's apparently has an amazing work ethic. He has a really nice Euro step that I think could develop into a good flashing game. He seems smart. He has a good feel for the game. So it's like, from pretty much from like any angle you look at it, he's oh, also, you know, he has good tools. He's really athletic. Uh, he's quick. Uh, he's really strong. I guess maybe you could say his height is a little bit underwhelming for a small forward. That's the worst thing you could say. But it's like, so when you kind of like break it down from like all the different angles, he looks good no matter what light you cast on him. And, you know, my, as far as, you know, in my opinion, when somebody looks good from every possible angle, that just means they're a really good prospect. And, you know, some of the other guys at the top, other than Towns, you can sort of like, like Okafer, you can kind of say, oh, well, you know, he can't shoot, he can't protect the rim, he's not that athletic get a little skeptical, or, you know, you can doubt Russell's athleticism, his defense, his ability to get to the rim, but, you know, Winslow just seems awesome across the board to me. That's a fair assessment. You know, I, I really like him a lot as well. I, I don't know that I, and I'm, I'm much less of an expert than yourself, but I don't know that I quite had the stones to put him up as high as two on a on a personal board. I also, I really, really like D'Angelo Russell, so I don't know that I could put him over him. Um, dropping down just a little bit from the top of the draft to get a little more in the Jazz's range. We were discussing earlier Frank Kaminsky. And in particular, we were discussing something that, that David Locke, the the play by play voice of the Utah Jazz, a point he's made recently about how players like Kaminsky, who played three or four years in college and were not dominant until the latter years there, that is until they were playing against younger players as an upperclassman, that those are typically very risky picks in the NBA because they don't have a great track record of succeeding. I kind of disagreed to a point because I think in a, in the context of where a team like the Jazz would be drafting him, he's a little more of a of a feel of a fit pick and, a, and a, uh, an extra option for their offense. What do you think of Kaminsky? And, and, and more overall on that trend, is that something that you've noticed over your years as uh, being uh, uh, looking at the draft? Um, I mean, for, well, first of all, I'll say that I like Kaminsky. I don't really buy that hypothesis all the way. I think, it, you, you know, it makes a little bit of sense that you might say, oh, you know, maybe we're guilty of recency bias because college is a small sample and, you know, for whatever reason, it could be a fluke. But take, for, for instance, like the number one comparison you think of is Kelly Olenek. And Kelly Olenek was a guy who nobody even knew about. He wasn't on anybody's radar as anything at all until his redshirt junior year in Gonzaga when he was suddenly the best player in college basketball. And Kaminsky was also, he was good as a sophomore. He had really good grade stats. It's just that Bo Ryan, for whatever reason, only played him 10 minutes a game, but I'm not really sure why. Right. Um, so, you know, I think, I think Kaminsky's a good prospect, and he would be a perfectly good value at number 12 overall as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, he's 
I could see him being like an Olenek or be- even better than Olenek, and, you know, that's perfectly reasonable late in the lottery. He's, uh, you know, he has his athleticism and strength efficiencies, but, you know, his, he's got an amazingly skilled offensive game. He competes hard. He seems like he has a chance of at least holding his own undefe- on defense as opposed to just, you know, being a lock to get, you know, chewed up. And, you know, you compare him with Favors, you compare him with Gobert. Uh, you know, I, I, I like him. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Kaminsky. Is he who you would take at number 12 then? I mean, kind of looking at which prospects are likely to be there kind of right now, is he your favorite amongst that group, or do you see somebody else who you, you'd consider a, a, along with Kaminsky at number 12? Well, I guess I would probably lean um, a little bit towards maybe Stanley Johnson or uh, Kelly Oubre just because they are sort of, you know, a l- younger, more upsidey, and uh, you can play them along with, uh, you know, along, you, they, they could potentially be in the starting lineup if, you know, the Jazz plan on keeping Favors and Gobert, which I imagine they do, right? Yes. Yes, yes. So, so, so the Kaminsky, the idea is, is you're just getting, you know, a super three-way big man rotation, but... Um, you know, I think somebody like yeah, Johnson or Oubre, I think are kind of two guys who could end up sliding to 12, who could both be kind of, you know, the combination of good value and good fit. So I would take either of them ahead of Kaminsky, but short of, you know, one of those guys being available, I'd say Kaminsky would be on the top of my list of guys I look at in that slot. Would you, I, I'm guessing probably yes, but would you have him over Miles Turner? A lot of people have made the comparison between Kaminsky and Turner. I don't think it's a good one. I don't know if you think differently. I would personally take Kaminsky all day over Turner. Would you feel the same way? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, Turner, Turner's different. He's, his appeals, he is more shot blocking, but Kaminsky's just such a more fluid and more skilled player. Turner, Turner has a lot of weird red flags, and I have a hard time really envisioning him becoming a really good NBA player. Okay. Okay. And one more, the last one before we let you go here, and this is a not necessarily a nod to the Jazz, more of a nod to those in the, the Salt Lake Valley here who are— Well, and the station is the home of the Utes. And that of that as well, of course. Uh, the Utes, uh, we've got DeLon Wright coming out this year, and I think I think he's fallen a little bit from where he may have been in, on some people's boards like during the college season this year, where I think a lot of people had him as a potential fringe lottery pick— mid-teens, early 20s type of thing. Now, you know, on Draft Express, I think he's 30th or 28th or something like that. Uh, what do you think of him? Do you think he has a chance to be one of these guys that comes up a little bit and gets drafted higher than the consensus says? What are your thoughts on DeLon? I definitely think he's one of those guys. Um, it's possible he could fly the late first and be a late first deal, or maybe he'll be just a complete bust we never hear about again. But DeLon is... You know, he's he's one of those special snowflake prospects that you just can't say he's going to fail. He has, you know, I get the question marks. He's really old, and he, his tools are really shaky across the board. Um, you know, I guess he, at least he doesn't move in slow motion like Kyle Anderson or something. Yeah. He can, you know, he's basically athletic and quick if he, if not above average. But the thing is, he's got really sharp instincts, and he's good at everything. He can shoot. He can penetrate. He can rebound. He can pass. You know, he racks up steals and blocks. He has great instincts attacking the passing lane. And, you know, a player like that, you just can't – it's just hard to say that somebody who sort of has, like, that sort of outlier mold where he just sort of has some 
sort of special awareness, I just don't think you can say this guy's just not going to be a useful NBA player. You know, he has the skills, he has the um, IQ. Um, I don't think he really has, like, star upside, but, you know, it seems like he has enough to overcome his tools and become a really useful NBA player. So I would kind of have him as, you know, a mid to late first rounder. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody, you know, scooped him up in the early 20s or late teens. Okay. He's going to get drafted by San Antonio and be the finals MVP in like five years, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right, doesn't it? Yeah. Let me let me ask you this. This has kind of been the question of the show, and, and I'm sorry I, I didn't let you know that we'd be asking you this beforehand, so I apologize. But I, I'm curious what you think, Dean. We've been talking all, all show about if, the jazz, if you were the Jazz, would you trade the number 12 for to Toronto for Patrick Patterson? It's kind of a, a realistic-ish scenario that that may come up in, in terms of, you know, getting the Jazz kind of the stretch for that they, they don't currently have on their roster. Is that something that you would do, is, or is the value kind of too good at number 12? And I'm, I'm going to add a, a, a side caveat there, too, is that we'll say Stanley Johnson has already been picked. We'll say he's not he's not going to be available for the Jazz at 12. Okay. Um, you know, I think I, I like Patrick Patterson, but... At the same time, I think this is like a pretty deep and good lottery. And, you know, you kind of – the problem with trading 12 for Patrick Patterson is you know Patrick Patterson's going to be solidly good. But just punting on that upside tail where, you know, Frank Kaminsky – you draft Frank Kaminsky and, you know, against all odds he becomes, you know, the 25th best player in the NBA or the 30th best player. You know, like missing out on the upside tail is like a look kind of expensive to me. Mm-hmm. So I would just gamble. I'm a, you know, granted I am a gambler, but I would just <laughs> shoot for the upside because, you know, Pat Patterson's a nice piece to kind of round out the rotation when you're like, all right, you know, we're ready to make a playoff push with the Jazz might be next year. But at the same time, you know, maybe they'll find somebody to really spike them going forward. Yeah, no, I I think that makes sense. Um, you know, we kind of saw that when the when the Pacers traded number fifteen to San Antonio and and the aforementioned mm-hmm. Finals MVP yep. Kawhi Leonard. Uh, you know, you miss out on the upside potential of that of that number fifteen pick, or in the Jazz's case, number twelve. I think it's a real concern. All right, well, Dean, thank you yeah. so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, tell everyone where we can find your work. Uh, DeanOnDraft.com. It's my blog. You can check it out. You can follow me at Twitter at DeanOnDraft. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Definitely. Thanks so much for coming, Dean. And guys, make sure you go on and follow him at Dean on Draft. A great follow. And I, I really like specifically with, with Dean's blog that he's there's a number of people out there that are kind of either or. Like we have Lane Vasher on the show every now and then who's a very statistically minded sort of angle. Not that he doesn't watch the players, of course, but his, his analysis is based centrally around statistical analysis. And then you have more of your traditional type of guy. And again, not that you know your Chad Ford types don't use numbers, but they are I think are a little more you know skills and which holes does he have to plug and so on and so forth. I think Dean's one of the best in terms of trying of utilizing both really well which of course everyone knows my belief is that you have to use as much information as humanly possible all the time yeah so. it kind of takes it from the approach of a front office of you know if if i was making a draft board here's how i would look at each of these prospects right takes into account kind of their matchups against good other prospects and uh yeah like you pointed out the stats as well uh, i want to talk about the that number 12 for patterson question because we've got a few more responses on it since since we talked about it last okay uh first of all El Cuervoncito, since we're in spelling bee mode, that's, that's at Storybox22. That's a good one. 
says absolutely he would make that deal. Jared Schultz at six man. Jared says no, thank you. Jazz are on the cusp of being a legit playoff team. Need to go for one major veteran contributor, not a role player. Okay, so he's kind of arguing about packaging that, I guess. Right, yeah. And I think I might, in that case, I might debate what necessarily qualifies someone as a veteran contributor because I I don't know that the Jazz can get many of those who are much in a tier or two above a guy like Patterson without giving up stuff that they don't want to give up. It is a point, though, that you would have to pay more for Patrick Patterson than you would for the number 12 pick in the draft. So you are that does take away some of your cal- your salary cap space that you could then yep. use in free agency. That's very true. So it, it's something to keep in mind. Uh, Zach Halford says you have to, and then ask six man Jared, why can't you go for both? That might be one reason. Is again, you just have a limited amount of salary cap space. Um, oh, and, and you can't depends. go for both. Like, <laughs> I mean, I mean, oh well, okay. Unless I guess, unless you're going to take Ubre or a wing or Booker. Uh, a wing with that 12th pick yeah. you can't do but if you're yeah, thinking you if you're if it's basically the way we pose it to start and I guess we didn't pose it to Dean this way but the way we posed it at the start was would you either take Frank Kaminsky or would you that or would you trade for Patrick Patterson I, that I don't think you can do both like I don't think you can try and send other assets for Patterson after you've already drafted Kaminsky gets a little unless Booker uh, is one of the assets you're sending out in a bigger trade yeah which you know would save them some money uh maybe you do Booker plus and OKC first and maybe they're happy with it maybe maybe OKC first plus a couple seconds. I mean, that's a kind of nice haul for a player like Patrick Patterson. But on the other hand, it's a, it's a long-term value. I mean, maybe mm. it, 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 maybe is what I'm saying. Okay. Um, but a lot of divisiveness on this part- on one yeah, little trade. We've gotten yes yeah. or no. And, and oh, these are the sorts of debates that like the Jazz front office has all the time. Because I mean, there are there are people in the organization that would say yes, and there are people in the organization that would say no. Ultimately, Dennis Lindsay has to decide whose arguments are better. <laughs> uh, but. I mean, these are the sort of debates that really front offices have leading up to the draft to draft yep. time. So. All right, so we got like a couple minutes left in this segment. Yeah, I want to talk about more trades. Okay. Um, the trades that we were going to talk about in the first segment and then yeah, nice. got roped into draft talk. Um, uh, first one, let's mention Drew Holiday because we haven't talked about him on the show yet, I, I don't think, uh, it's since your article about him and, and the possibility of the Jazz trade for him. First of all, I want you to give the the upside reasons. You know, why would the Jazz trade for Drew? Well, the main one that I like that I like to highlight with this, or with a George Hill, or with a, any of those other potential point guards you might look at. First of all, the assumption has to be that Trey Burke is is no longer is part of the trade and is is no longer on the team after that trade, or that they they basically do another move at, simultaneously and Trey Burke isn't on the team anymore, leaving Dante Exum and potentially Drew Holiday. My, the main thing I want to highlight as an upside is that you can have Drew Holiday on your team. You can even have Drew Holiday on your team starting without Dante Exum, where Dante Exum comes off the bench and you can do all this without stunting Dante Exum's development. This has been a major point that a lot of people have liked to bring up on the Twitters and whatnot, that bringing in a more experienced veteran point guard would stunt Dante Exum's development, and this just is not the case. Histori- there is a ton of historical precedent for guys that have played either with or behind a better player at their position when they were young and have become great players before long. And Dante Exum can play with Drew Holiday. In some sense, though, this has become like the central question of the Jazz franchise, right? Like we had Derek Favors and Ennis Cantor playing behind Paul Millsap and Al Jefferson. And it it, it turned out well for one of them and then not for the other. Although you can make the argument that Derek Favors didn't really flourish until he was... The, the number one guy. But the main reason um, why it turned out well for one of them and not for the other is because one of them's a great player and the other one isn't. That's the main reason why it I turned don't know out if that's well. That's true. I mean, we saw Ennis Cantor play better in Oklahoma City than he did in in Utah. B- better because quotes. No, I, I I think it was better. 
maybe. That, I guess. Offensively, certainly. I mean, the, yeah. the dude put up like a 21 PER at the end of the season. Yeah, I guess that's true. I, I uh, And I understand the point that you're trying to get at. Is this, is, this has been a long-running theme with the Jazz of the whole like moving guys out of the way to try and develop younger guys and, you know, in this case, not bringing a guy into the way of developing another younger guy especially with guards and a wing rotation where either Exum or Holiday can play the two for significant periods. In fact, both are com- both will be completely comfortable there. You've got 48 minutes a night at the point guard position. And then, like I just said, you've got times you can... Who says you can't play those guys 10 minutes a game together? Who says you can't play them 12, 13, 14 minutes a game together on average? I don't see why you can't do that and also still have plenty of time for Burks, plenty of time for Hood, plenty of time for Hayward. Here's the bigger issue with Drew Holiday that was pointed out to me. He has a pretty chronic leg issue that has kept him out of the last two years. And when you're dealing with, you know, I I think it's different when you have like Andrew Bogut, for example, who had these kind of freak injuries two or three times in a row. People called him injury prone, but it's kind of different parts of his body that were failing. Drew Holiday had successful surgery May 6th um, to remove a screw from a previously placed rod in his lower right leg. So there's a rod in his leg that they had to do another surgery on to remove a screw from. It, it's the second surgery on that leg. Uh, I mean, it's because they had to do one to put the rod in. Yeah. But it gave him trouble after that, dating back to January 12th of this year, and then nearly all of last season. I think he's only played 73, 75 games total over the last two seasons right. due to this leg issue. I really worry about that moving forward if, if I'm spending multiple assets in order to acquire him. Right, and that's fair, and I'm taking that into consideration when I do it. Now, here's the reason why I'm okay with that. To one degree, I'm kind of like Dean, who we just had on. I'm a bit of a gambler in a sense at times. I think you have to take a shot at some high upside, especially because for the 100 millionth time, I believe that next year is really important for the Jazz and that making the playoffs but should be really priority one. But if it's really then you shouldn't spend assets on a guy who's a boomer bust player because if it's boom, then the Jazz, aren't, you know, if the Jazz get the point guard production that they got last year, they're not making the playoffs. Yep, I think that is true. That. So if if that booms and you're left with spending, kind of, you're sp- you've spent your assets on Drew Holiday. And you've got a poor playing Dante Exum and Trey Burke, or you probably have to trade Trey as part of that deal, let's yep. be honest. Then you've got only Dante Exum and Bryce Cotton, or Bryce Cotton equivalent to be right. your, your point guards. I, I, I don't think that you're making the NBA playoffs. So it well, is but very, you're not, very risky. But you're not making them anyway if you just keep the if you just keep Burke and Exum and they play even approximating how they played last year. The other part of this no, is what, that what if let's sign- say two years down the line, because there is a risk that either he leaves two years down the line, holiday that is, or he's too hurt and you don't have him a couple of years down the line because you know maybe his career ends or something right. like that. If Dante Exum isn't who the at least something approximating what the Jazz hope he's going to be in two years anyway, you're in trouble regardless. Yeah. And that's kind of my attitude there is that I, I want to kind of try and take the upside there. We did have a tweet real quick that I wanted to read uh, from Clint Peterson saying, so every week is going to be trade Trey. Huh? And We haven't uh, talked about trade Trey at first all. First of all, no. But second of all, uh, to a point, it, yeah, it, it has to be a topic of conversation because, quite frankly, it's a player who you selected with a high draft pick who has been nothing short of terrible <laughs> and who really, if you're looking to make a run at the playoffs in the next couple of years, there's a chance this guy can't be part of your rotation anymore. And if he's not going to be part of your rotation, you have to try and get what little value you can out of him. And I think that the, with all the signs that we've heard from the Jazz front office that they're going to be active on the trade market this summer, I think you do have to consider him as one of the main pieces that may be involved in that. So yeah, that's why I, we mention it as often as we do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I don't want to say that every week is going to be trade trade. Every week is going to be us trying to find ways to make the Jazz better. Yeah. A, a lot of times that means making the point guard position better. 
you got to choose Dante Exum or Trey Burke if you're if you're going to be acquiring a point guard. And Dante Exum's not going anywhere. And Dante Exum's not going anywhere. I mean, that's both from insider knowledge, talking to people around the Jazz, and quite frankly, just common sense based on where they are in terms of upside as prospects. Yeah, I promise I don't hate Trey. Neither of us hate no, Trey. In fact, don't. both of us really like Trey as a per- as a guy like a ton. He's great. It, I I wish that he that, you know we wouldn't have to talk about this as often as we do. But, but. we did number twelve for Patrick Patterson did not we did. involve Trey Burke. It We're going to talk about another trade on the other side of the break that does not involve Trey Burke. We're, Boom. Yeah. We're we're not one dimensional is all I'm saying. Let's go ahead and take that break. On the other side, we are going to talk trades, more trades for this number twelve pick. Um, keep keep on keep on listening to the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN. listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. When I find myself We're going to be us. We're going to play our same game and uh, defend like crazy, push the tempo. Obviously, they have a, a, some uh, experienced guys that have been here before, but you know why not us this year? This is a fantastic remix of the Beatles Let It Be, but you know, with Steph Curry, made by a user on Reddit a couple of weeks ago for their playoff run. And it's brilliant. It's well done. NBA parody songs are not well done, and that's that's spectacularly done. We, we did it in the show while you were gone. I had missed it, and so okay. wanted to play it. Okay. Now that Steph Curry is now an official Western Conference Finals champion, is the MVP of the league. We'll be playing LeBron James in the finals. It's it's a perfect game. Okay. Fair enough, I guess. He, <laughs> what do you mean fair enough? That was brilliant. All right, all right. Have some soul. Uh, that was. Uh, uh, doesn't that speak to you? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> you got to uh, hit the high note if you're singing Let It Be. Like, come on now. He did get the high note. All right. Well, I don't know if he did, but maybe later on in the song. But I, I thought it was well sung. Can't believe you hate it. I don't hate it. I just—that's <laughs> the first time I've heard it, and I'm still digesting what I was, what I heard. I'm, I'm gonna be all dramatic about it. I'm gonna be like angry housewife. Like I can't believe you don't like my dress. I can't believe you don't like the Steph Curry song. Right. All right. Anyway, um, <laughs> I've been watching Mad Men, hence the mild sexism. Mm, okay. Let's talk about trading the pick some more. What? Uh, I, I've got some uh, a couple other ideas. Um. Ryan Anderson, also in the Patrick Patterson mold, also on a team that kind of wants wants a little bit of a shakeup, obviously, hiring a new coach. Um, GM kind of has to make a move in order to keep his job, probably. Um, I, I wouldn't say Dell Demp's job is secure. Maybe that's a reason they don't trade for number 12 and instead keep their assets. Yeah. Ryan Anderson, though, didn't have a great season last year, but is definitely a guy who is, you know, maybe... One of the original stretch fours in terms of just kind of the impact, especially with the with the Orlando Magic. Uh, do you trade him? And, and if you trade number twelve for him, I mean, he has a bigger contract than Patterson does. Not by much, um, and less, but he does have less years, which is less valuable. No, first of all, no, I would not trade okay. number twelve for him because he's not as valuable as a guy like Patrick Patterson. Um, I actually have a question for you, real quick, before we go on. Sure. How old do you think Ryan Anderson is? Uh, I would say twenty nine. 
He's 26. Really? Did you know wow. that? Because I didn't know right. that either, because I would have said about the same answer you did. I would have said he's like 29, 30, 31, something like that. He's, he was 26 this year. I don't know if maybe he's turned 27 yet. Yeah, he just turned 27 on the 6th, okay, on May still, 6th. That is, that is younger than I thought he was. So, yeah. you know, he is a piece that would is, is not too old to be uh, part of a, a core moving forward. Right. Now, I would send some kind of something for him. I wouldn't send the 12th pick by itself for him, especially because in, in sort of in the mold that we were talking about with Patterson, that would take up a lot of the Jazz's cap space that you've yeah. got right there. Like, that'd be it, unless they would take some salary fodder back, which the Jazz don't even really have much salary right. fodder to send. Um, I might consider sending him, you know, as part of a larger package, like potentially if they wanted to include him in the Drew Holiday package and we were making it a, a larger trade type of a thing, I would certainly be willing to look at that. But then it gets so complicated. Oh, it like, does. And at that point, uh, somebody else has to go back from the Jazz, like a like an Alec Burks. I, or I just a, can't imagine a trade. Again, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, that trades are more likely to not happen than to exactly. happen because they're just so complicated and guys uh, love their roster so much that they've built. Um, you know, that's that's two big rotation pieces that, that New Orleans loves and has a relationship with. I just can't imagine them trading him for either one player asset and a draft pick or a couple draft picks or whatever just because it, you know, it, it would set them back to such a degree uh, unless they had immediate plans for that cap space. Right. Right, we got it. We did have a tweet real quick from Sporadic Regularity saying, and it's he's he's pretty much right, laying it out. The advantage of a pick is a cheap, low risk contract and upside, and the advantage of trading a pick is immediate but limited impact. Right, like that's pretty much the exact dilemma that we're talking about here in terms of whether we'd be willing to make some of these moves or not make these moves. Um, and also Travis Reed then agreed with us that no, he would not trade number twelve for Ryan Anderson, which I I agree. Okay. Uh, we also mentioned David Lee in our post on Salt City Hoops on this, our, when we went five on five talking mm-hmm. about these trade deals. I, David Lee has one year and $15 million left. Definitely overpaid. You know, on a free agent market, I think he gets seven or eight right now. If um, that. But I, yeah, something like that. Something like that. You know, I, I, I think he, he, he gets about that. I mean, he still has low post potential, or not potential, but ability. Um, you know, he, he'd be a really good bench scorer for somebody. Yeah. Uh, that being said, you'd have to get something else in return in order to make that worthwhile to basically make up that $8 million difference and, and make up that opportunity cost for the Jazz. And what are they really going to give you? I mean, Harrison Barnes is the only thing. Probably. Yeah, and, and he's almost too good. So, yeah, it, it becomes a problem. You know, do you do it for like a 2021 first-round pick? Because <laughs> uh, they've already no. traded the two to the Jazz for the next, uh, I guess, 2017 yeah i don't they could trade 2019 i think yeah i don't like the david lee idea i didn't like it when we did the five on five for it i don't i just i don't like it i don't like how it kills your cap space right there even if you're getting an even if you're sending salary out but and again you know a million times that i think next season's huge i don't want to kill my cap space for next year if i'm the jazz i want to have a chance to sign an actual impact player over the summer not that david lee would never play for the jazz but he wouldn't he would not be worth what they were paying him essentially okay um no i don't like the david lee Okay, let's do the the next conversation. New York at number four. Right. There have been some rumors that the Knicks may be looking to trade that pick. Uh, they're at least looking around the league. If Russell was available, what kind of trade do you make in order to make that happen? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, I think that's basically impossible. I think if I think if Russell is there at three. Sam Hinkie and the rest of his team are going to high five each other loudly and pick him um, because I think that's exactly who they want based on okay. basically nothing, but I, but what they need for their team. I mean, he's perfect. Right. Okay. Um, that said, 
I I would potentially, because of how high I am on this guy, despite the fact that I love both of these players for the Jazz, I would definitely consider sending a package that includes either Rodney Hood or Alec Burks, as well as, of course, our pick from this year and also future first-round picks to potentially move up to that four spot and select D'Angelo Russell. It's something we've talked about before that the chance to draft a true a guy who could actually be a legitimate NBA superstar doesn't come along all that often, especially for a franchise like the Jazz, and that if you have a chance to get to it, you may even have to sacrifice a year or two on your developmental timeline to do so. And I, I I would even forego my whole, like, I really think the Jazz need to do great next year type of thing to have a chance at drafting a guy like Russell who has such a, a, a percentage chance at legitimately being a superstar in the league. Yeah, I, I don't know if the Knicks do that just because, you know, number four, while being a disappointment compared to number two, is still somewhat of a splash. Uh, also, I, I don't know that Alec Burks has positive trade value at this point. He might going not. Into a four-year multiple... Or it's, it's, Eight double di- an eight digit deal per year. Well, it's a deal that looks more and more attractive the year as you go down the line a couple of years. But that's true. But he was still injured and was it a below average player last year? Right. Um, so yeah, I, I and I, I you know I'm fine with trading Rodney Hood. I I don't I guess for the number four pick I don't say that lightly. I have an article coming out tomorrow on KSL explaining why I owe Rodney Hood an apology. But <laughs> yeah. um. Yeah, you was, weren't. You didn't like him. I was not in. pro Rodney Hood, yeah. um, and and he has changed my mind on that. But that being said, for number four, I think you do it. If D'Angelo Russell is there, you definitely do it. Do you do it for Justice Winslow? That to me is a question. That's when it gets really close for Moutier, me. Uh, I mean, I would not do that for Emmanuel Mudiay. I would do it if they were lo- if they had if they really liked uh, if Russell was there or if they really liked Winslow and wanted to look at the him. The Jazz already have high upside prospects at point guard. Yeah, I don't think you need another one. With Winslow, I think he does some things on the roster that would fit really nicely into what the Jazz are trying to do. I mean, mm-hmm. he's a great defender. You could put him in either the two or the three, depending on where you, you want. You could put him at the four Hayward. sometimes. You could put him at the four sometimes, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's a great question, and I, I would absolutely trade Hood up for for Winslow. You do Hood At that point, it would get into the minutiae. It would get into the, yeah, those, the, the, the is, extra Hood details. Hood is not that great of a problem. I mean, he wasn't even on either the first or second rookie team. I mean, if I'm Phil Johnson, I say, look, I had, or Phil Jackson, excuse me, I had Langston Galloway who made the second all-rookie team over Rodney Hood. You know, you're offering me Langston Galloway is how I would maybe, not how I would feel about it, but that's what Phil Jackson's saying in negotiations, right? I don't so think I, that's right, to, but he might look at it that way. Yeah, you need to you need to offer more than just Rodney Hood and a couple firsts. I think in order to get that number four. If it so was Russell, if it was Russell, would you consider offering one of the true core pieces? Not Hayward, of course, because he can't go, and not Favors. So, so Gobert or Exum, would you consider sending one of those pieces? If they, it, it would pretty much be them and the pick for or them and the and the twelve for the fourth pick to select D'Angelo Russell. Would you do it? Uh. That's really close to me, and I, I know it I sounds like do, sacrilege to some people to say that, but I, I, the chances of D'Angelo Russell being a superstar are much, much higher than the chances of of Dante Exum being a superstar. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's such a hard question because I, I, I think, I, I, I don't know if I agree with you on that. You don't I, think so? I think. Oh man, I I don't know if too many people would agree with you there. Yeah, I think the, you're right. The I'm, chances I'm of biased. of Russell being and I love I love hard. Dante Exum and I think he's got a much higher upside than people have. A lot of national people have have basically lumped him into based on his rookie year, which wasn't very good. I think yeah. his upside is way higher than his rookie year would have indicated. But I don't think it's anywhere near what D'Angelo Russell's is. 
then I mean, would you do that deal, number twelve and and Dante? I would do. Yeah, I think I would. Really? Honestly, I think I'd do that okay. if again only okay. if D'Angelo Russell was. But sitting you'd there. do like number twelve and and Dante for like the number three or the number two pick in order to guarantee getting Russell. Yeah, I would. I think I think I would. I and I don't say that lightly, man. I haven't actually gonna, done I'm that thought exercise Dante. until now, but I, I I think I'd do it. I'm gonna tell Dante he's gonna cry. I love you, Dante. <laughs> he's gonna he sleeps with a teddy bear, man. Okay. Hey, he's Dante. Fragile. They all. Everyone knows how high I am on Dante <laughs> still, and I really and, and this is not me advocating the Jazz trade Dante Exum. I want him to be here, but if that move was available, I think I'd probably have to jump at it. Okay. Hard decisions that you have to make as a GM. Yep. It's a hard knock life. All right, well, let's go ahead and take one more break. We'll continue this conversation after the break on Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700, your home in Utah for the NBA Finals. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. I love how this show gets just increasingly goofy as we go later on. It really does. <laughs> uh, that would be Deep as Oh No with your 0708 Utah Jazz theme song called Utah. I don't. I don't know what it's called. We're like a. We're like a Utah Jazz. We're like a bar late at night. Like <laughs> it just gets progressively more goofy and ridiculous as you go along. Like, but, and then you're getting towards last call, and it's just the bouncers are just like, "Dude, we got to survive 20 more minutes." Here. This is indeed our last segment of the show. The Steph Curry song is better than that. Ah, uh, yeah, go with that. Also, Too Big Yo is is definitely better than this. <laughs> yeah, we we got to play Too Big Yo at some point on the show too. I got admonished uh, earlier in the week actually because I had not listened to Too Big Yo the full way through. I now have. It's okay, Andy Glockner. I now have listened to that the full way through. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame you. Uh, it, it's hard to listen all the way through. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Gordon legitimately has the best part. Yeah, no, no doubt, which, you know, he probably insisted on. Yeah. I don't know if he wrote the whole thing. Yeah. And it, it is some pretty poor writing. Yeah. We, we got to do like a, a ranking of all the top NBA theme songs. Okay. So, weird parody send drafts. those to us people tweet those because there's the shane foster um nba draft song as well yeah i probably don't even know half these you guys get tweet us tweet us these guys during this week tweet us songs but then if it's something that you don't think we've heard you got to tweet a link like i got to be able to hear it like I, with the one andy just mentioned i never heard of that before so yeah. like you gotta yeah tweet us at andy b larson or at uh ben underscore Dowsett. actually mark deeks had a really good breakdown post of this like four or five years ago on, oh, did he? on his website nice sports we got some coaching news to talk about really quick first, uh, and it's kind of big NBA news. First of all, the Chicago Bulls fired Tom Thibodeau today completely unceremoniously, just released a press release hounding him for a, a terrible leaks and being a bad coach and just was really not a very classy thing to do. Uh, the whole way they've handled this situation has not been very classy from the start in terms of all the stuff that's been leaked about him and everything. Yeah, no, it, it has not been pretty. Uh, and, you know, you wonder with that team and that that front office, you know, this is the same team that in 98 broke up the Bulls. Uh, you just Was Paxson in on that too? Paxson was, right? Uh, Foreman was. Foreman wasn't, point. but was Paxson still in the, in the front office at that time? I, I and Ryan, so. well, Ryan's rushed the guy, obviously, but... Um, uh, I mean, I was like seven. Okay. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Uh, 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 the Del Negro thing was actually handled much better than the Thibodeau thing, which I think is interesting. Speaking of Vinny Del Negro. Yes, indeed. He interviewed for the New Orleans Pelicans job, um, <laughs> which I, I think is a little bit interesting. That's Along great. If we could go Skiles from Monty Williams to and, Vinny Del Negro. Oh, man. And Jeff Van Gundy. So 
I, I like Jeff Van Gundy as a coach a lot, by the way. Me too. Uh, Skiles, I, I, I like Skiles quite a bit. I like Skiles way more than other people do. Um, people hate him as a player development coach, which, okay, fine. But he has a legitimately transforming effect on defenses. And I think if you put him next to or uh, with Anthony Davis, that team's a top two or three defensive team in the league next year, even with all of their weirdnesses, because Skiles is such a good defensive coach. Isn't he one of those guys who, in a couple stops, has kind of worn out his welcome after a while? Yes, kind of like a, a tip style? Is tip style all the way, rides his players way too hard. But he gets results for the first two seasons. Okay, I think there's a legitimate case that those kind of. But guys you're not are only hiring him for coach. two seasons, right? You're hiring him to be Anthony Davis's guy going forward. I pers- if I was them, out of the ones we've heard of them interviewing, I would hire Van Gundy for sure. Would you hire Van Gundy or Thibodeau first? Van Gundy, definitely Van okay. Gundy. I-, I really do think now. This isn't to say that Thibodeau's a bad coach, and he he revolutionized the league with his defense and the- and some of the tactics that he came up with, but. The things with the overplaying and the whole stubbornness as to, as to certain things like that, those are real. Yeah. And the, going forward in this league, that's something else I wrote a piece about. And again, it's about something that's a new a new bit of understanding in the league. That that, that stuff just doesn't work anymore. You, ju- you can't be riding your stars 44 minutes a night during the regular season and expect to get anywhere with them. And it, it, there's a reason why his teams always overachieve in the regular season and underachieve in the postseason, and that's what it is. Quinn Snyder said this in March about Tom Thibodeau. Thibodeau is the dean of all defense. If right. you do what Thibodeau does, by and large, it's going to work out. Yeah, and defensively, he's he's awesome. He's as good as they come as a defensive coach. First of all, though, the rest of the league has picked up on his tactics, which yeah. is, you know, that's understandable. That happens, and they're the best tactics, so that's, a, that's a, a nod to him. But he doesn't necessarily have that advantage that he may have had before in that area, I don't think, at least. Or if he does, it's smaller than what it was previously over other coaches. And I, I just think the the wear and tear is a real significant thing for a coach. And certain lineup stuff, the fa- I mean, the fact that he was basically unwilling to play Miritich at, at a bunch of points in the playoffs this year, like, yeah, Miritich played bad when he did play against Cleveland, but it's not about how he was playing necessarily. It's about how the team was playing while he was on the court. And there were there were several of those things during the play, and Miritich isn't the only one. There were several of those things where it was just, you're not 100% sure if schematically he's, especially offensively, if he's necessarily on par with some of his peers at this point. Best coach this playoffs Probably number one, Steve Kerr. Number two, David Blatt. Is that, I mean, I know that's awfully results-based, but... I think it's probably right. I also think you do have to give some credit to McHale for the yeah, way okay. Houston played and the way that the switches they started throwing at Golden State were really smart. It almost worked. It didn't quite because Golden State's just better than they are, but it almost worked. Yeah, um, no, I, I think that's fair. They did a really good job, and they did a good job of uh, stopping Chris Paul, too, in, yep. in the previous series. I, yeah. I, I think, yeah, you might have to put him in the top two based on those on those results. Although, and but Blatt's I, made a few obvious type of mistakes, but he's also, looking at the way that team's transformed themselves, you have to give credit to the coach there. They've done a really, really good job at that type of thing. I'm interested to see how well he does in the finals because I think a lot of stuff potentially rides on him in the, in the finals. It is the first time we've had two rookie coaches in the NBA finals since the very first year that the NBA happened. So right. trivially, the second time. Okay. Um, Real and, quick, we did have a tweet uh, based on the on the Tibbs thing that we were just talking about yeah. uh, from Clint Peterson saying Jerry Sloan was ahead of his time in player conservation. He pulled his stars like clockwork, and that's very true. And these days, the best coaches all do that, and Tibbs doesn't. That's part of why I don't think I'd bring him in if I was trying to get a coach for my budding superstar. Yep. Another note from Clint. Steph Curry will be the first NBA first team all-NBA to face all the other four in the playoff series. That's kind of fun. Huh. That's another Salt City Hoops show. Thank you all for listening. Check it out on iTunes, Stitcher, saltcityhoops.com. Thank you again. Uh, this has been Salt City Hoops show on ESPN. 700.